Hey guys, welcome back to the WBF Podcast. I'm here with Matt Lewis. Matt, how are you doing? Doing great, man. So, my wife was telling me that Debbie knew this guy named Matt Lewis, and uh, that you had started a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, she's like, he's got a studio, he's got all this stuff, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then we meet up at Debbie's birthday party, and then you start telling me about it. Yeah. And that's whenever I was like, oh, wow, he's really got like a passion for this. And then I came out here and checked it out. And that's what we're doing the podcast tonight. So thank you so much for letting us. Uh, I'm glad you could be here, man. I know this is it's not really my podcast. You know, I work for Turning Point. It's paid for by Four Rivers. I just host it, edit it, do the video, audio and have fun with it. Uh, I'm blessed to be able to do it. You know, I just. uh like I think I told you, I found a bunch of podcast equipment in a closet and nobody was using it. And I said, well, I'll learn how to use all this, thinking I would just be the guy who filmed it and edited the audio and stuff and ended up hosting it. So I think we got like uh, 40-something episodes. Mm. Um, and it's just been fun, man. And I, I think it's cool that you're doing this. Yeah, like uh, we met it. We had we didn't meet there, but like... <laughs> Uh, we baptized together before. I think the first time I was getting te- ready to tell you earlier was we were bowled together at one of the, uh, we're right next to each other mm-hmm. at one of the uh, dream team nights that we had in Metropolis. And mm-hmm. we were like bowling right next. That's the first time I remember seeing you, but I don't think we met that night. Oh man, I had uh, a two year old running around yeah. and stuff. I was yeah. like a zombie. It's so funny how like, when you have your kids at events like that, you just you're so in the zone. Well, you have to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we were at Debbie's, and you're like, "Yeah, we baptized together." And for some reason, my brain went to the guy who I actually was like, you know, side by side with. I and thought so that's what you were thinking. I actually. said no, and then you were like, "Yeah," and I was like, "Oh no," <laughs> but, you know. Uh, I mean, I'm terrible with names, and so I understand if you forget my face or... (laughs) Well, I just, like, the initial thing was, like, I just thought you meant, like, we, like, baptized, like, in the same trough or whatever, and I was like, no, I I was, like, trying to remember the guy's name who I baptized with. Yeah, I am terrible with names, so... That was a good old awkward moment for you, but uh, you know, we brushed right past it and got into the you know what you're doing here, and I just think it's so awesome that you know you're helping in the recovery uh, community, and like you know, I just can't imagine how difficult that can be. It can definitely be difficult. You know, uh, I say it all the time. It's not really physically taxing, but uh, it's emotionally uh, taxing, man. Because you know. We see people die, overdose all the time. Um, you know, I've lost friends. Uh, like I said, I'm in recovery myself. Um, so it's a, you don't do it for the money. You do it because, you know, it's a passion. It becomes a passion. And for me, it's kind of become my purpose, you know. Um, but I am blessed to be able to do it. As, as hard as it can be sometimes, I'm blessed to be able to do it, man. Yeah, I can imagine, like, with each person, it's a unique relationship. So you kind of start, like, you know, falling, you know, loving these people and then seeing them, you know, go back into it or even, you know, lose their life to it. I can imagine that be 
very tough. Um, loss is just not easy. And, um, you know, going through recovery yourself, whenever you're having those moments where, you know, people fall to the wayside or, or whatever happens, how hard is it to, like, keep yourself clean in those moments? Oh, well, it's – honestly, that makes it easier to stay clean, to mm-hmm. seeing people um, die from this. Uh, you know, I've had – I've lost friends when I was, you know, out in the madness and, you know – I didn't let it, I just used more on top of it, trying not to deal with it or feel it. And then I've lost people since I've been sober. And like my grandpa was the first one I lost when I got sober. And a lot of people could use that as a, the perfect excuse, so to say, like, you know, to, to start using again. Uh, but for me, like he passed on Thanksgiving and, um, uh, 2021 and I was working here I was chairing meetings all day we were feeding like people in recovery and homeless people who didn't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving like chairing gratitude meetings and uh, my mom called me at the end of the day and told me that he had passed away and I was just in such a attitude of gratitude that I was I was able to look at it like He's in a better place. He's with my grandma. He's no longer in pain. He got to see me get my life together. Like, nothing about it made me want to use. I know that's the last thing he would want me to do. And with people that we see who overdose and pass, um, you know, it's sad. It hurts me. But never once do I think, you know, am I going to go use over this? You know, because Mm. I would just be... I mean, it does remind me of a, a story, and stop me if I'm rambling. No, but go was, for it. I was in, uh, I was in Centerpoint going through rehab, um, and I had only been there for a couple months. I wasn't even sure how committed I was to it. And a friend of mine, um, who I'd known for years, went to high school with, he'd been sober for seven years, and he went out and he used, he went to a memorial of a friend of his who had overdosed and died. Mm-hmm. He used for the first time in seven years he overdosed and died. And I'm in there thinking, I want to get out and I want to go to this his memorial. And then I'm like, where's the domino effect going to stop? You know, mm-hmm. it has to stop somewhere. And it, it was, first it was disheartening because I'm like, he was sober seven years and he still, you know, like, but that just, I was able to look at it and be like, use it as fuel that I have to remain vigilant every day. There's never a day that I can relax and think, okay, now I'm cool. I could probably, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's the rest of my life, no matter how long, I have to be like, and plus, like, fentanyl is in everything now. I mean, yes. people are, it's different than when I was growing up and using, you know? Mm-hmm. Kids are dying a lot quicker today. And, uh, you know, today I'm happy to be alive. Yeah, it just takes a little of the fentanyl to be enough to kill you. And I could just imagine, you know, at at the funeral that those thoughts like getting put back in your head and everything, you know, it's just, you know, I've said it on here before that whenever you're an addict, you really know what it's like to give up yourself whenever you get clean, because it's like a daily battle. Like mine was alcohol. And so it was like for those first couple of weeks, it was day by day. I couldn't think like too far into the future 
And, you know, even for someone who can be clean for seven years, it just takes that one moment of not being sure, you know, not being strong, not being around the right people. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. You know, he could have just, you know, been around the wrong group and just said, ah, well, this one time, here we go. I mean, that's absolutely what happened. He was, he lived here. He went to Memorial in Orlando, Mm -hmm. you know, got away from his you know, the people that were supporting him to go because a friend of his had passed and got around his friends and I guess, you know, let his guard down. Uh, it's a sad thing, but, you know, you got to be smart enough not to put yourself in those situations. You got to have the the willingness to say no in those situations. And um, as hard as it is, uh, you know, it gets easier every day, you know, and for me, it does. I have no desire to use or drink today. Um, but it's only by the grace of God that I made it out of addiction and am, am where I'm at today, trying to help other people and being selfless instead of selfish, which I was for so long. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't do it without God. He is the piece of the puzzle. You know, for me, I knew who he was, and then I found myself slipping away. And that's whenever I started to drink. And um, did you uh, grow up in church? What was I your did. church life growing up? My dad was a pastor. I was born in Bowling Green. My dad was a pastor, and I have three younger <clears throat> sisters. And he's part of this church called Maranatha that... Um, they reached out to mainly college kids and they started churches all over the country. And my dad was the guy that would, they would send to the different town to get a church going. He'd come in as the assistant pastor. He'd help everything, get up and going, get people attending. Mm-hmm. And then once it was felt like there was, it was, everything was in place, they would move him somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So I moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, I said, I was born in Bowling Green we moved to Carbondale, Illinois, then to Austin, Texas, Honolulu, Hawaii, Lansing, Michigan, and then we moved back down here. The church kind of started breaking up and wanted to be each church be its own thing. Mm-hmm. And all my family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins are from here in Paducah. So when that happened, we moved back here. And I'd been homeschooled this whole time mm-hmm. and in church, you know, twice a week at least. And my dad was a pastor. And we moved here, and it was the first time I went to uh, – public school was halfway through eighth grade Mm. Uh, and it was uh i was really sheltered growing up as a kid as you can imagine being homeschooled and and in church and so it was a a shock to the system and uh you know so I, i i had no excuses to use other than you know my Desire. I, I started acting out when I got to public school to try and make friends because I didn't know I had didn't have any social skills because I wasn't didn't grow up in school right. like other kids. It was just me and my sisters. So I uh, started acting out, trying to be the class clown. Get, started getting in trouble mm-hmm. and you know detention and all that stuff. And that's when I fell in with you know kind of the the wrong crowd. Mm-hmm. And um, slowly but surely, I liken it now to like. All of the years, the 30 years I spent um, running from God, using uh, and drinking, was mainly about a crisis of faith. You know, mm-hmm. I got to that teenage years and I was having all these other uh, interests and not forgetting about what was important. And I started questioning everything that I had been raised on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started 
saying like, out of all the religions in the world, how is it that I was just lucky enough to be born mm. into the one true religion and that everything my parents told me is the truth. So I kind of had to kind of go search for myself. And I, in that process, I, you know, I lost myself. I, I ran from God. Um, I looked for him in other places and didn't find him, but I wasn't really looking. I really was just trying to, I don't know. I, it's a crisis of faith, man. I lost my faith. And, um, and it was weird because I kind of told myself, we used to have these guest pastors come in uh, and speak at our church. I remember growing up, and they would always have these wild stories of, you know, their life in drugs or, you know, before getting saved. And I was raised in church. And I thought, how am I ever going to help anyone else if I can't relate to them? So I used that as an excuse mm. to, like, I got to know a little bit about what's out there, and then I'll come back, right? I'll just yeah. dip my toe into the world, so mm -hmm. to speak, and and then I'll come back and... Uh, but, you know, be careful what you ask for. You know, you dip your toe in, and I fell all the way in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was 30 long years of alcoholism being my main problem. And then, you know, opiates, heroin, mm -hmm. and even fentanyl for a, a long time there towards the end. And, uh, you know, it was, it was not pretty. You know, I got to the point where once I started praying again towards the end, I was just praying to die, you know, mm -hmm. basically. Um, but I came out of it, man. I, COVID hit. I lost my jobs. I moved back down here. Uh, I went to rehab, and that was a blessing, man. You know, it was just I was at the right place at the right time. I was, didn't think I would stay in rehab, but, like, it, it was COVID. There was nothing else going on. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to stay there and see what I could learn, try something different. And through that process in there, uh, I reconnected with God, man. I started getting mm -hmm. the word. I started hitting my knees. I, uh, I worked the steps of AA. Um, and those two together, uh, you know, I got to a point where I started feeling good again. I started feeling like I wanted to live. And I started being like, I have to start really applying this stuff. I paid attention. I listened. And I realized mm -hmm. it's not only about willingness, but it's about willingness and action. You can't, because I say this all the time. I wanted to be sober and my life to be better for a long time. I was willing for that to happen if there was a magical wand that would have been <laughs> waved and just made it all, you know, go yeah. away. But I had not been willing to do anything about it, to mm -hmm. do the hard work, to take a look at myself, um, you know, to go through those detoxes and try to piece my life back together, to change people, places, and things, all that stuff. And so once I realized that that's what I had to do for it to work, I was just finally at the point to do that, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, I would, I couldn't have done it without God helping me through that. Like me connect, reconnecting with God. And once I graduated at some point, you know, I go to faith center. I got baptized myself as soon as I graduated the program mm -hmm. and, you know, I've just threw myself, I started working at turning point here and trying to help others through myself and uh, volunteering with the church and working with Matt 25, trying to stay as connected as possible, give back as much as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, those thoughts, those like, you think you can just think them and then they're not going to like build on top of each other, but it's like a really like a circular thinking pattern when you start having any kind of doubt. 
in God or like, you know, doubt and like, is this the one true God? Because I remember whenever I was like 18, 19 and someone would, someone would ask me that, well, well, what about all the other people who believe in like Islam or what about all these other people who don't believe in your God? What happens to them? And I never had a good answer for him. And I, I still don't know if I had the best answer for it, but you know, and most people will still just like stretch this off. But one of the biggest things about why I believe is because I know I've like felt him, you know, like there's a feeling that's different with experiencing a relationship with him. And, you know, for people to truly open their heart to something that's real like that, I think that's, you know, the step that's obviously the hardest for people because they don't want to give up that step. They don't want to give up that part of themselves. You know, we have a very similar uh, backstory because I I wasn't uh, homeschooled, but I went to uh, private school through uh, fifth grade. So a little bit sooner, I was introduced to public school because my brother wanted to go to Lone Oak and my friends were going to Lone Oak. I had a buddy who grew up right down the road from me who was going to Lone Oak and we became like immediate best friends. So I was like, you know, they're starting to make us wear uniforms. So I had a class of like 12 kids and we were all really sheltered. And I was already like not the cool kid either. You know what I mean? Like these kids are like, most of them, their families are like really loaded, you know, doctors and stuff like that. I'd go over to their house and, you know, humongous mansion style houses. Yeah. And so I like didn't realize it then, but looking back, I was already like one of the kids who wasn't in the cool click, you know. So to go from that, not really knowing anything, not knowing what sex was, not knowing like me and, you know, my dad thought taking us to the events, taking us to church would fill us up and be, and prepare us. And it prepared us but it didn't, like, you know, prepare us for the worldly stuff. And, you know, so I, I went from learning from him and my parents and church to learning from the my peers. And, man, middle schoolers don't know what they're talking about, so they'll start <laughs> filling you up. Yeah. And uh, so I'll go from not knowing what sex is to girls being pregnant in my class. And I've said it on here before, but I had a teacher pretty much make fun of me in, the whole, in front of the whole class for never having a girlfriend before. And really? so, yeah, I know, that's crazy. And I remember, like, going to ISD or going, if you got in trouble, and you'd immediately be around a certain group of kids. So it's funny that you said that whenever you started to act up, you kind of, you just immediately start surrounding yourself with kids who do that yeah. on a regular basis. You know, they go to what we call alternative school a lot, or yeah. they've been in juvie. I mean, I, I remember this one kid, he was he would go in and out of juvie and stuff. So you're around all these influences and... I even had some buddies who would hang out with them, but I never was, like, in that group. It took me a little bit longer before I started hanging out with, like, the quote-unquote bad kids, you know what I mean? But we were just, you know, we were just smoking weed. We weren't, like, you know, some of the kids were doing some harder stuff at such an early age, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how it was for me. I was hanging out with those kids, and those kids were hanging out with other kids who had already dropped out of high school mm-hmm. or had graduated and you know it's the the drug scene man it was smoking weed and a little drinking and you know progressively doing harder and harder things you know i i started falling off in school and my senior year my parents put me like they stopped, finally started catching on to what was going on <laughs> and uh there was this thing going on called parental probation that they were doing here at the time where mm. my parents took me to the police station, had them drug test me. And then the parents set the terms of your probation and the police enforced it. So wow. 
my parents' rules were I could only go to school and work and home, you know? Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to enforce that for a year, but you couldn't do it after they turned 18. And this happened, like, at the my turned 18 halfway through my senior year. Mm-hmm. So it was only the first half of my senior year I was on that. And my grades and everything improved, even though I was mm-hmm. still sneaking out the window at night. And, you know, I still I had to make it look like I was doing everything that they were asking. And and then, but on my 18th birthday, without telling them, I moved out. Moved out everything. Still mm-hmm. like half of a year of, of high school left. And I moved in with a buddy of mine and his older brother, who I didn't know at the time, but was they were coke dealers, or one of them was. Uh, and so, you know, immediately I'm in that whole scene. I barely graduated high school mm-hmm. because of that, you know, because I was, you know, up all night and wasn't going to class, and I had, you know, I wasn't living at home, mm-hmm. uh, so there was no one to make me do anything. But I still graduated by the skin of my teeth, and it was just, you know, uh, off and on up and down roller coaster ride of a life from then, you know, uh, did you go to college or did you just work? Or? I tried to go to college right after high school for a little bit, but I, uh, <laughs> so that guy who was, I was living with, he ran off to Florida with my rent a couple months after I graduated. So then I was homeless, didn't want to go home. So I was just couch surfing, crashing, sleeping in dumpsters, stuff like that. Um, you know, I was kind of in the punk scene, so... Where were you at at, at this time? I was in Paducah. Okay. Um, and, you know, I thought it was having fun, though. You know, it, like, it didn't really bother me, but, uh, you know, eventually it got to the point where, you know, I was sick of crashing in places and stuff, so I, I ended up going home, patching things up with my parents, kind of trying to go to uh, community college here. Mm-hmm. But that ended quickly because I wasn't changing anything and I ended up getting kicked out and I was trying to go to school while sleeping in my car in a graveyard or I'd stay up at Walmart. They used to have like a restaurant in the back of Walmart. Mm -hmm. I'd sit in there and do my homework all night. And uh, finally I moved in with a a buddy who had a a couch um, and he was going to school and I thought that was going to work. You know, that was not a good place for me either. Mm. Started doing Special K a whole bunch, which is a cat tranquilizer. Oh. Mm-hmm. We were breaking into animal clinics to get this stuff. I mean, wow. so school just completely fell off. And then I got kicked out of there and moved to Murray, um, you know, and I wasn't going to school. I was mm-hmm. just partying. Yeah. And uh, just did get- that for a little while. I had actually gotten into a car wreck uh, earlier where I had tore my ACL and so I'd gotten a little bit of a settlement out of that, mm. and I was kind of just coasting off that. And, um, you know, I got in some trouble. I did a little jail time. Uh, and then I moved to Panama City with a bunch of friends. And, you know, there was just the eternal spring break, you know, it was just mm. debauchery. And uh, I went on for a couple years till people started going to jail, you know. Just lots of ecstasy and cocaine. And, you know, I'm not glorifying any of this. You know, I'm just informing of what I've been through. And from there, when I left, I went to Louisville. And I lived in Louisville for 20 years. Um, I met the mother of my son. We got married. I have a son who's 21. And you were talking about, we were talking about, like, how I was raised and how you were raised. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was raised and sheltered so much, like, my attitude at the time was, 
I'm not going to shelter my son from anything, mm. you know, going the polar opposite with him. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a happy medium in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> because the one good thing that came out of it is my son, he's seen me sick. He's seen me go to jail. He's seen me, you know, broke. Um, and he didn't want to be anything like me. Mm. So he stayed straight, you know, um, and that's the only blessing out of it. Uh, we have a great relationship today. But, like, again, I, I, I liken that only to the grace of God because, you know, he either could have wanted to be like me and mm -hmm. that I would have to carry the guilt around of that. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Or we, it, I could have been so bad off that our relationship had been severed, you know. So yeah. I'm just thankful for where that's at. But I lived in Louisville for 20 years. Uh, that marriage lasted four years, um, you know, nonstop drugs and alcohol. Then I went back to college after we got divorced. And I actually applied myself this time. I was working two jobs. I was being a dad. I, uh, I, got, I was on the semester. Oh, I was on the dean's list for three straight semesters, going to school for graphic design. But I was drinking and drugging the whole time. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I did. I was just had the right amount of energy at the right time and was motivated enough mm -hmm. with all that stuff going on. Um, but I could never pass college math. I had, could never pass algebra. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up with 90 college credits and no degree. Wow. And, uh, you know, once I just quit on that, that was kind of my, at that point, that was, I looked at that, that was my last chance to try and make something of myself. Mm -hmm. And I just gave up and gave in to, you know, my addiction and that lifestyle I was in and the depression. And, uh, you know, it was many years after that, of that, of just being miserable and surviving yeah. uh, before I got to the point where, you know, I was willing to do something about it. Yeah, I keep on catching a bunch of friends. You know, it's so crazy how much of an influence people around you can have. And when you have nowhere to go and you're just kind of like relying on these people to sleep on the couch or whatever the case may be, and then next thing you know, they're pulling out cat tranquilizer or whatever they got you know i had some buddies who were just you know crazy doing whatever you know whatever they could find and you can really just get caught up and not even realize you're just going through the motions just day by day just surviving on whatever whatever's thrown at you you know what i mean yeah and uh i did one semester of community college and i was way too high to pay attention, sleep in or whatever, and realized real quick that wasn't going to work. So I just, uh, I dropped out after, the, after like, I don't even remember. I, I, I remember I was like failing trig within like the first two weeks and I was like, oh no, this is not going to be good. Cause I just, there's no way I was going to be able to do it. <laughs> and you know, me and my wife, I don't think we were living together just yet. You know, we were probably getting together around that time. And then within that year or maybe a year after that, we moved in together. So then I just became a functioning alcoholic. Like I was just, you know, I worked, you know, 2.30 to 11, five days a week at Chick-fil-A. I was just busting out chicken and drinking and smoking. And, you know, it was heavily smoking until I got in trouble. So I met, let me backtrack a little bit. I met Jody when we were about 19 and right before I turned 20 is whenever I got two misdemeanors. So that's whenever everything like total changed because I was just buying weed by the ounce. I was just smoking like to work, 
on my brakes, like just every second, you know, that's just what my identity was. And when that was taken away from me to an extent, that's whenever I just started just drinking like super hard, super fast. I didn't even like it before that. I had done it a couple of times and it was, you know, an acquired taste and I was a little wussy about it and I didn't like it. So, but I learned to get over it pretty quick and that comfort of like being like steady for me, was made it made it to where I didn't think I had a problem. You know what I mean? I was like, we're affording this apartment, we're doing fine. I'm twenty, twenty, whatever. You know, through my early twenties, um, I was just like, this is what you do. You know, you just have fun, and uh, it cost us a lot. You know, we had a lot of arguments. Got to the point of where we almost had to break off our engagement, but God had a lot of grace on me and, and saw us through to marriage. And it still was even after that before I finally was able to, you're talking about, you know, knowing, you know, that realization and still like not giving, you know, like knowing you're not ready to take the steps. I remember I'd like look at myself in the mirror and like I'd be like scared of myself. It's like I couldn't tell what was going on inside of me and I just knew I wasn't like who I wanted to be and stuff. So you you were in Louisville and you had just totally given up. You're just doing whatever, whenever. And when did you like? How did you come to the decision that like I need some help? Oh, I mean, it's funny the the decision I had known for a long time. Like alcohol was my first love, and even I've had five DUIs, right? Three first, two seconds, and even at the first one, I knew I was an alcoholic, and. Mm-hmm. To me, it was kind of a joke, like, you know, and AAs for quitters, and, you know, this is just how it is. Um, So I knew early on I had a problem, but I was like you. I really thought I was a functioning, you know, even though, you know, if you're saying, if you're going to jail over and over again and you're getting DUIs, (laughs) you think that's not functioning, but uh, to the alcoholic mind, you know, hey, I'm my bills are getting paid. Those are just speed bumps. You know, this is yeah. how the life is. You have fun. You've got to pay the price for a little bit and then, you know, right back at it. And, um, and the, the alcohol was a constant drugs were just like, whenever they were around, I would do them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an addiction there, but slowly, but surely after years and years of continuing to do the drugs I liked, it became, you know, it was an addiction to opiates and heroin, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a whole another beast, and especially when you have two addictions, you know. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, I I went to school successfully for you know a few years during that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I made it to work. I was a hard worker. I was like, I'm the one who's gonna have his cake and eat it too. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Ridiculous. And um, you know, it wasn't until I friends at all started dying or going to jail or getting sober. All relationships had been exhausted. Uh, I was basically alone with just a couple of friends that I could trust. Um, miserable, depressed, and that went on for years mm. before, you know, really it, it was when COVID hit. I lost both my jobs. Uh, you think it's the end of the world. So I'm just like, what little money I had, I blew. And I'm like, I'm going to party this out. And then realized there's no more money coming in. Now I wasn't starting to get my uh you know the money for mm-hmm. get from yeah. tax exempts and stuff like that uh I wasn't starting to get that and so I just said I'm gonna get off uh 
heroin on my own. Mm. I have, don't have to go to work. You know, I've been wanting to. I'll just get go detox. Can't leave the house. Everyone, COVID everywhere. So I decided to drink my way through it. And, mm. you know, I did that for a couple months. I just drank all day, every day through that detox mm-hmm. phase and got off of it. But that just pushed my alcoholism, which had been constant for like almost 30 years mm-hmm. into another level where now I couldn't function without alcohol. Like it was all day, all night. And uh, that's when I moved back down here to get into my parents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd been lying to them and manipulating them from Louisville. They lived here in Paducah for years. They didn't know any of this was going on, you know? Right. Uh, and I moved in and because I was, I hid it from them. I had vodka hidden in the closet and I was drinking all day, every day. And I guess they just thought that's how he is, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was always about half drunk. And that was exhausting because I'm trying to not get belligerent, but also not be sick. So you're just like wavering in that, you know, Mm -hmm. it was terrible. I would wake up um, middle of the night, vomiting, have to chug vodka to go back to sleep for a couple hours. Mm And I didn't have a job. I was doing odd jobs for myself. He said, COVID. And, uh, but money had started coming in. And I was just saving it. I wasn't spending any money on rent or anything. I was living at my parents. I was just spending money on vodka. Mm-hmm. Basically, it. Uh, I didn't have a license because I lost it right before COVID hit. Uh, my fifth DUI. And I was working with a buddy of mine, painting a house, uh, drinking the whole time. And I got home and I was just in the heat, exhausted, drained. I'd been doing this for three months. It was like walking that that tightrope the whole time. Mm-hmm. It was just exhausting. And I just got to the point where I just fell out. And my sister took me to the emergency room here at Lourdes and told them the situation. Like He's a hardcore alcoholic. He's going to be detoxing. Mm-hmm. And I did a 14-day alcohol detox, which is the worst detox I've ever ever been through you mm. know i've been through many different detoxes but that was the worst non-stop vomiting wanting to die hallucinations mm. pouring sweat and um while i was in there uh a guy comes to face center um mike reagan you know mike reagan he mm. came and saw me he told me about center point and really the only reason at that point that i was willing to do it was because i didn't want to go back home to my parents and face them you know Mm-hmm. giving me grief. Now that they knew the truth about everything, uh, I was like, that's going to be miserable. I already felt depressed being 42, living at home with my parents. Mm-hmm. Like, to have to go back home and and hear it all day, every day. I'm like, I'll just go to rehab, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad I did, man. It was the right time. You know, I'd never been to rehab, uh, never been given the option to. And, uh, you know, it was seeing that there were other people who are trying to change their lives for the better, you know, seeing that, cause I, I used the excuse for years that, you know, I thought sobriety would be boring. Um, you know, I, nobody's doing it. Nobody I knew was, uh, mm-hmm. and the ones who I didn't know were doing it, their lives seemed boring. So I was <laughs> like, I'm not going to, but seeing that there were actually people in there who were trying to see the people who had come through before me. And that, that's what you said. That's what bolsters faith is seeing it work in other people's lives. And then you start to see it work in your own and you're encouraged. And I mean, that's how it worked for me. And, uh, you know, 
slowly but surely. It's about finding that faith. And that's, the, when you asked that question earlier about what do you tell people who believe in other religions, I don't have the answer for that. Mm-hmm. But I know, for me, it's all about having faith in what I believe to be true. And you have to have faith in whatever you're doing. A level of faith is required. And for me, it's putting faith in God and Jesus Christ. And, you know, I can't imagine any other way now. Like, it's because I've seen it work wonders in my life. And it takes work, and I'm still growing, and I'm still learning to apply myself. And I'm grateful for the people in my life today that are helping me do that. Um, But I'm committed to this, you know. And having that childhood, being raised the way Mm -hmm. I did, those values were instilled in me. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I did a lot of, I went against a lot of them. I've broken most of the Ten Commandments. You know, Mm. I'm no saint. I wasn't a saint by any means. But I also had a good heart through it all, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I didn't hurt people that I cared about. I'm not justifying any of my behavior. I'm just saying that those values were still there. And once I, like, reconnected with God and redevoted my life to Him, it was, they all came back. And, you know, it's a blessing you know, to have had that instilled in me at a young age. I I was mad at my parents and had a resentment against them for the longest time for sheltering me and moving me around a lot. And I could mm-hmm. never grow, I didn't grow up with the same group of friends and all that stuff. And that was kind of a, an excuse or reason I used to when I <clears throat> found those kids, <clears throat> excuse me, that, uh, you know, the, the bad, quote unquote, bad kids, mm-hmm. they immediately took me in. I was, you know, it was like a family that I had always been missing. I felt that I'd been missing. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, but the whole total truth is that my parents, you know, were doing what they thought was best and they were trying to raise us right mm-hmm. and um and you know for the most part we've all turned out good we just right. <laughs> we've taken longer paths around you know when you're when you're that young you just don't see that it's just total like chinese to you like trying to understand that your parents are doing what they think is best is just like not a thought like you're just like screw you or like you're just thinking of like all the things you don't have or or you know for me it was like the kids around me were able to do whatever they wanted to, so I'm like, why can't I just do these normal things? You know, right. the world is, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, no one's having a good time if they're sober. Like, these kids are doing whatever they want to all the time, and I'm just living this boring life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the things I was jealous of as a kid was, uh, you know, my cousins got to watch R-rated movies or, yeah. you know, or MTV and, you know, mm-hmm. or... Uh, uh, we weren't allowed to celebrate Halloween or even Easter. Like oh, really? all my cousins would be hunting Easter eggs, and we'd be me and my sisters would be sitting on the porch because that's not what Easter was about, right. you know. So yeah. um, that was hard as a kid. You don't understand it, <clears throat> even though they tell you the reason. You know, you you see other kids having fun, and you think, why can't I have fun? You know. I hear this stuff now, and I'm thinking, I got a two-year-old and, like, an almost one-year-old. It's like, how can I explain it to them so that they can get it? You know, because I don't want to do it uh, exactly like my parents, but I want to be pretty close to the spot my parents were at and do it in a way where I can explain to them the things of the world without them having to expose themselves to it. 
And I don't know if there is much of a line there without them having to get their hands dirty. You know what I mean? I mean, they're going to make mistakes and like knowing when to let go when they're old enough to like let them make their own decisions and like make mistakes so that they can learn from it and like not yelling at them or condemning. Like you have to find these lines. So it's so, you know, crazy to think about being like a 16 year old or whatever, you know, teenager and, all the rebellious tendencies that every teenager has and trying to think of like, how can I help my kid not have to go through like the worst of it? Right. I mean, lots of prayer. That's what I would, (laughs) I mean, I I don't know that there's a a completely right way to do it. You're going to make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes. You know, you gotta, I feel like just trusting God. I got lucky and scared my son straight. Like, and I did Mm -hmm. it terrible job as a parent um so i can't give you advice on that but i it's gonna be like raising kids today with all of them just walk around with a cell phone in their face and you know social media and all those things it's just gonna be hard it's gonna be about helping them to choose the right people to be around you know Mm -hmm. because that's where that i feel like that's how it was for me i was influenced by the crowd i was around Mm -hmm. uh you know, when we first moved here, I was going to youth group, but I didn't fit in with those kids mm-hmm. because, you know, I was trying to act out and I didn't, there was a different church than I'd been in. I didn't, they had all been together in youth group for a while before I got there. So I was like the weird new kid mm-hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I didn't fit in, but then the other kids, you know, they pulled, accepted me right in like I was one of the. And that's that's the danger. Like, mm. I don't know. Well, they probably don't have a good home life either. So they that is kind of like their family right. as well. And so, like, it seems like people who are a little bit on the degenerative side of life seem to be more accepting and loving at first hand. And you know, it takes usually like someone getting in big trouble for you to kind of for that gap to you know show yeah. itself in that relationship. Because like, as soon as one of you is going to get in trouble. You know, you all throw it all on on that person. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but there, you know, that's something that the world does. That sometimes Christians can work on is like just showing love and like bringing people in. Like absolutely, you know, being a part of our youth. Like I, I want our youth to be loving to the new kids, and and it's tough to get a kid. You know, they form these cliques. It's uncomfortable for them. It's uncomfortable for the new person. Yeah. You know, uh, I talk about Zach a lot on here. He's my buddy who he passed away a couple years ago, and we met at church. But he lived on my road, so I like seen him on our road one day, and then like the very next Sunday or like two or three Sundays later, he shows up at Faith Center, and I wasn't really cool with any of the kids at Faith Center. I mean, it was so small at that point, so it wasn't really like there was like a click. Um, I remember I went up to him and sat beside him like very first time I've ever met him and I was just super awkward and weird like hey I like think you live on my street kind of like the weirdest (laughs) like introduction I could possibly do but reaching out like that and us forming a friendship I mean that lasted for you know until he passed so like those moments are so crucial to who's reaching out to you and it's hard for a kid not to just like latch on to the first thing that's reached out you know yeah. Yeah, I mean that's how it was for me. And then like growing up in church, one of the other things that kind of pushed me away was like if you grow up in church like I did and you you're always in church and you see what goes on in the church, you know that 
you're learning the Bible, I'm hearing all these stories about how, you know, Christ was and how he wants us to be. And then you see in church sometimes self-righteousness, hypocrisy, mm-hmm. greed, mm-hmm. anger. You know, you see people that you've looked up to that fall down and like sub- leaders who you trust, are, you know, they're doing wrong things behind closed doors mm-hmm. and it it destroys your faith, man. And that's part of what happened to me. I was like, I don't want any part of that. I don't believe that that's how Jesus would want us to live. And if, you know, the people who are showing us how he's supposed to be showing us how he wants us to live aren't doing that. Um, but again, I use that as an excuse. Today I realized that, you know, that, is, that exists. I mean, whether you're using drugs or you're in church, there's going to be people who are doing it wrong, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, it's about your relationship with God. And it's, it's hard to, like, I'm trying to do it the way I feel God wants me to do it mm-hmm. and then not be self-righteous about that when you feel like other people are doing it differently, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it takes a lot of humility. Yeah, it does. It takes a lot of humility. It's like walking a tightrope, and it requires faith, you know? Well, so many Christians aren't in their word. They're not being spirit-led. They're not being led by anything. They're just coming for a Sunday warrior session, and then they're back into the into whatever world. I mean, you know, there's people who are doing both, going to church and doing drugs. I was drinking while I was going to church. So there's all these people, and it's like you can sit there and look at their example and let it turn you away, or you can, you know, a, as we grow and we realize like everyone's got their own walk, we can just try to pray for them and, um, you know. But as a kid, you see that kind of stuff and you're like, "What? What is this?" So, it's super crucial, man. Kids, kids pick up on that stuff, you know, and and they're oh, yeah. watching you and they're watching what you're doing. So, you know, you just got to be careful with what you're doing, and I. I think as you grow, like as I've been growing so much in the past few months, it really is like that focus on you that kind of like helps you keep like what others are doing at the wayside because like I shouldn't be worried about what other people are doing, you know, and I'm teaching this Tuesday coming up on like blaming because a lot of what pride is, is us like blaming others. Yeah. And that's what a lot of what I did whenever I was growing up was blame others for like the mistakes I was making. You know, when uh, God asks Adam, like, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He says, the woman <laughs> yeah. you gave me. So he's like blaming God and Eve all in one step. It's mm-hmm. just like initial. It, it starts with fear, but then your pride can form around that, that thought. Well, it wasn't even me to begin with. It was Eve's fault the whole time. Imagine if that would have stayed with Adam. And he's telling, you know, his sons, well, Eve ate the tree and then kind of gave it to me. And I guess I ate it too, you know, like as an afterthought. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of like going through Centerpoint Rehab. That was probably one of the hardest but most beneficial parts of that program is, you know, taking a good, hard look at yourself, realizing, like, when you do a fourth step um, in the 12-step program, you know, you got to list your resentments, your fears, your harms. And uh, the, the point of the resentments is to see, like, what part you played in these resentments you have against other people. Mm. Because a lot of times, 
It could be you changing your own actions that would have avoided all of it, you know, mm-hmm. your part in it. And I was the same way. I would blamed everyone else. If this hadn't happened, if this cop hadn't pulled me over, if this judge wasn't, you know, so mean, if it, <laughs> you know, all those things, uh, when it was my thoughts, my actions, my beliefs, um, mm-hmm. that was the root cause of all of it. And, you know, it's a hard thing. It's a hard pill to swallow. Um, but once you can take a hard look at that, accept it and really realize, all right, I'm the one who has to make some changes. And once you get to that point and you're trusting God and walking in faith that he's going to help you do that makes it 10 times easier to do it. And, uh, you know, like I said, it, it was probably the most beneficial part of that program is digging through all that and learning to love myself for who I am Mm -hmm. and having true love and empathy for other people. Um, you know, Blessing. How long have you been sober now? Three years, about a, almost a month ago was three years. Congratulations, man. That's awesome. Thanks. So, Thanks. like, what's the next step for you now? <laughs> and, you know. Is this it? Like, do you feel like you're, like, really, get, like, serving where you're supposed to be right now? I, is this a, like, step in the direction you want to go? You know, this is good. Like, where I work at Turning Point, I do peer support. I work with other people in recovery Mm -hmm. and a lot of what I do is I encourage them to set goals, you know, and then work towards those goals, uh, daily goals, short-term goals, long-term goals. Mm Uh, I'm bad still at goal setting. Like, I feel like, I feel like I'm definitely where God wants me to be right now. I'm at peace in my life. I'm happy. I enjoy doing what I'm doing. I feel like I'm helping people. Um, you know, I used to not want to live in Paducah because I've lived all these other places. Mm-hmm. And now I realize it's not where you live, but where you are mm-hmm. up here in your head that matters. And right now I'm in such a great place spiritually. Um, yeah, but I, as far as the future knows, goes, man, I don't have <laughs> dreams of the white picket fence or anything like that. I, yeah. I, I would love to be able to travel and do something in serving and travel. Maybe mission work would be something I'm interested in doing. Um, you know, I don't want to go back to school because I don't want to take that math class again. <laughs> I failed it three times already. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, man, to, just to continue to try and learn and listen. I really, right now I'm in a season of trying to just hear God better, mm-hmm. you know? And I know that like, uh, you know, we're in ramp season, right? They talk mm-hmm. about it at church. We're in ramp season. And I was spending some time just, like, quietly being with God the other day. And, like, I got this sense of ramp season. I grew up skateboarding and stuff, and I started picturing the ramps. And then I felt like God was saying, lean in. Because in order to get on the ramp, you got to lean in to drop into the ramp. And, you know, if you're not, this might be a silly metaphor, but, oh, you good. know, that's what I felt like God was saying to me in that quiet time. Like just, you can always go deeper, you know, and this is the season for that. So, and part of that for me is to be able to hear him better. So like, I'm trying to be quiet and just listen for that still small voice and then be able to recognize it, understand what he's saying and then obey it. You know, that's 
that's my ultimate goal right now in my life is just trying to grow closer to him and be more of who he wants me to be. And I feel like once I start being better at hearing him, then I'm going to know more what direction I'm supposed to be going yeah. forward. Um, but either way. That's a great goal, man. I think that's an amazing goal because the better you are hearing him and seeing what he's telling you in the word and feeling that impression on your heart, the more you're going to be led into what, what's next. And, yeah. you know, our church has a heart for missionary work. So it's awesome that you're going to a church that has people going, you know, to Uganda and going to all over the world. And it's only going to grow. Like, we're just starting. Like, we're scratching the surface. Like, there's so much. I love that word that God gave you to lean in because once you drop in, you're going to be going 90 to nothing. You know what right. I mean? Like, you, people don't realize, like, that lean in is so scary because when you drop into that ramp, I mean, you're going fast. You got to commit and you got to have faith that your board's going to work, that your balance is going to be there. Uh, yeah. Um, There's a lot to unpack with that. So you keep on leaning into that, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the plan. I'm excited for it, really. You know, I had a period about a year ago where I was trying to force growth uh, in my recovery, in my spirituality, in my relationship with God. I was like, you know, God, why aren't you speaking to me? You know, it was like an angry thing. And uh, I had a realization at that point that, you know, God's going to speak to me on his time. I can't force his timing. I just have to be patient and willing to do what's put in front of me at that time. And, you know, I was early on. I'm still early in my relationship with God, you know, even though I've spent my whole life knowing who he was, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's uh, we all have so far to go. And but now I'm in that place where I'm not forcing it. I'm just like, I know it's going to happen when it's happened, but I am open to it. And I'm like just trying to spend that time in quietness. You know, I got the suggestion to just be quiet with him. You know, I'm in the word daily. Mm -hmm. I pray every day. Uh, that became a part of my routine once I was in treatment. And I, you know, I've done that. All since I've graduated there, two and a half years, I've hit my knees every morning, gotten the word. I started journaling about what he, I was feel like he was speaking to me mm -hmm. through the word. I hear God great through the word. Like mm -hmm. things are highlighted to me when I'm reading the word. But I, I felt like I was struggling with like just hearing, knowing what voice is his in my head, you know. Yeah. Um, but I know that it takes patience. I know that it takes time and I'm here for it, you know? Yeah, just, you know, in a world full of noise, finding some silence so you can hear from him. Because how are you supposed to hear the Lord if you're just constantly filling up your head with noise? Yeah. It's so, um, and that patience that you really need, because even when I'm doing this, it's like, I want to see it, like, grow. And you can have faith towards that, but if you let it get to the point where you're like, why isn't it growing fast enough? You're missing the whole purpose of what God's doing. You know, John was talking about last week, like, don't despise humble beginnings. And I had a Pastor Muga on a couple of weeks ago, a pastor from Uganda, and he said something very similar about not despising humble beginnings. And coming from a man from Uganda, from very humble beginnings, it was, like, super profound and powerful. And to yeah. hear it again and, um, you know, it's just... It's awesome to see, like, this ramp season. I can't wait to look back a few years from now and see, like, how far we've come as a church, how far I've come as a person, my family, uh, you know, our church family. It's just going to be truly awesome to get to, to see that. So uh, one more question. Sure. 
I was gonna try to ask. I always try to ask a good question, and they're always like super dumb and corny. But um, <laughs> I prefer dumb and corny. Yeah, it's like who I am. Um, so I was thinking, like, you have a perspective of the addict, and then someone who's like helping people who are addicted. Like, what's some advice that we can give to people who who feel like they're functioning in their addiction to maybe help them see that there's like a way out? Well, that's <clears throat> that's rough when you, because as we both talked about earlier, when you feel like you're functioning, you don't think it applies to you. You don't think you have a problem, or you, even when, like I said, I knew I had a problem, but I was handling it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. Sometimes, sadly, I have to pray for people I care about to hit that rock bottom. You know to get to the point where they're actually willing to do something about it. And yeah, that's a, it's a hard prayer to make for somebody that you care about, but it's a lot of times that's what it takes for our um, willingness to grow is to get that hard humility mm-hmm. and really have to take a look at ourselves. Um, but I just try to be loving and encouraging to people because we get people to come in at all different levels, people who are, still using to people who are early in recovery to people who have been in recovery for years and they're going through that what we call life on life you know because it's not easy and you're going to have problems and we need support we can't do it alone Mm -hmm. so i just try to be loving encouraging uh sympathetic and empathetic towards all of them um i try to lead by example by the way i'm living in my walk with god and uh and my recovery and uh I don't know if that's a good answer because no, I. No, that's good, man. Go ahead. No, because I, because it's a hard question. You know, what do you say to that person? It's different for everybody, yeah. where they're at, uh, and you might be able to say the right thing to the right time. It helps to know them, um, mm-hmm. but for sure. Yeah. You know, God, God lets us have free will. That's one of the biggest blessings we have as people, and so, you know, what I. Whenever I pray for people who I know don't believe or whatever <clears throat> the case may be, I just pray that God sends people in their path that maybe we'll be able to, that they'll be able to receive it from. You know, pray for laborers in their path and stuff because they're not hearing it from me. And I can't worry myself sick over it. And, you know, part of addiction is not realizing you have a problem. Well, sometimes someone just needs to flat out say, like, you might have a problem. And for some people to hear that through a podcast or hear that, from their family, like you can only ignore it for so long, you know, eventually, you know, God, God's going to allow you to continue to make the dis- mistakes and it's going to lead to consequences. And sometimes sadly it is the consequences that, you know, truly open our eyes. You know, I don't know what my realization was that helped me get sober. I mean, I, I think coming to church was huge, a huge help, but I still was for the first year or so, I don't even remember, you know, how long we were going before I finally quit. But there's something there where, like, I just had to realize, like, enough is enough. You know what I mean? And um, it it's tough. It's so tough. Finding someone who's been through it helps. Well, I, another way that how I feel like I try to reach people is you're not going to reach everybody. You're not going to be able to relate to everybody. <clears throat> Sorry. But I try to do things like this. 
mm-hmm. give my testimony. I go speak at meetings. My job is is trying to touch people. I uh, have a YouTube channel where I make uh, songs about recovery and try to be inspirational. Uh, I try to lead by example. You know, I, I do paintings of people at work. They're just like ways to make people, people feel good and try to be that little bit of inspiration and hope and hope that and pray that one of those times at one of these places, whether I be at Lifeline or Centerpoint or any of these recovery centers I go to speak at or on my podcast, your podcast, mm-hmm. hope that it touches someone right where they needed it, right at the right moment, you know? Um, and I just have to keep doing that and hope that I'm planting a seed here, there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's what I hope, channel? that's what I pray. Uh, it's called This Little Light, but you probably couldn't find it if you searched that. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, you have to search Mahamba123, M-A-H-A-M-B-A-123, mm-hmm. and then This Little Light. And I got like 19 songs, silly songs, um, about God, about recovery. Just trying to have fun. Uh, you know, that's one thing that I've, once I got sober, is like, I'm going to live a life today worth living. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm exercising. I got into climbing. I paint. I play guitar. I got involved with church, community outreach. I just, I keep my, I sponsor people and I work in recovery. Like I stay busy as possible and all of it to try to, you know, enjoy and live life to the fullest and help people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Man, thank you so much for letting me come in here and talking with me today, man. I greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, man. So uh, I'll talk to you guys uh, next week. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening to the WBF podcast. Whether it's your first time or you've listened to every single episode, it's truly just a blessing to be able to speak with you guys and bring the testimony of what Jesus has done in, in the lives of the people around me. If you guys are blessed, I just ask that you share these testimonies with your friends and family, confidently post them on your social medias, because we never know whose testimony it is that's gonna to touch someone else. And I'm believing that these testimonies will touch the world, not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus. So if you want to be a part of growing this ministry and seeing the equipment get better, eventually get to see video, you can go to the WBF Podcast Facebook page and find out more. I'm praying for every single listener that God will bless you and He'll open your heart to whatever He's got in store for you. So thank you, and we will see you guys next week.